Good morning. So wonderful to be here in the Lord's house, worshiping him on a Sunday morning. A couple of announcements. First on the list is the youth retreat, and that is today. Uh, we're going to be leaving this afternoon and coming back on Thursday. Um, I want to say thank you all to everyone who have, who's helped out with snacks and goodies and drinks and uh, we just hauled it all over to the youth building and, and packed it up, and uh, it's going to be a lot of stuff, and I'm sure it will last about two days with teenagers. <laughs> but thank you very much. Um, so our youth retreat, we are going to Lake LBJ. We've got houses for a house for the girls, house for the boys. We're going to come together at one house during the day and have worship in the morning, Worship in the evening, devos throughout the day. Um, we're going to play in the water and play some games and fish and kayak and um, do a lot of fun stuff. But most of all, I, I do ask that you pray for us. Um, pray that God will work um, this week with uh, not just the youth, but the leaders. Um, that we will come back um, having grown in our knowledge of the Lord and uh having grown closer to him. Um, if you're visiting with us, you will see hopefully somewhere around you some visitor's cards. We would love for you to fill that, those out uh, so we can just have a record of you being here. Um, if you're visiting online, you can go to the website and uh, fill out the visitor's card there. I think that's it for announcements. Is anything I missed? Any other announcements? Yes, ma'am. All right, for a call to worship this morning, I'm going to read from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of you, of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
The Lord sustains all of us who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food and in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who come upon him, who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, and he will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we are here today for you, Lord, to worship you, to praise you, Lord, to make your name great among the nations. Lord, I do pray that our worship is satisfying to you. Lord, we praise you today most of all for Christ, his life, his death on the cross for sinners. Lord, the fact that he was raised and ascended to heaven. Lord, we thank you for all that we have in him and through him. And today we lift up his name in honor and in glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
some of you don't go to school in Cherokee, but those of you that do know that I'm the librarian up there. So I figured the best thing I could do today was read y'all one of my favorite books. Y'all up for that? I'll try to make it interesting. So this is a book called The Donkey Who Carried a King. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of long. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it to get started. It starts off with a little boy who doesn't ever get picked to play any of the games with the other kids. Actually, he does get picked, but he gets picked last. And he's pretty sad about that. So he has a, a conversation with his grandpa, and his grandpa tells him this story. Y'all ready? Okay. So many years ago, there was a little donkey named David. He lived in a village close to the holy city of Jerusalem. He was too young to work, so he was kept in his pen. He had brothers and sisters, but none of them could play with him because they had jobs to do. Sometimes they carried sacks of olives for their master. Sometimes they worked for people in the community, and some of them even carried grown adults on their back, which donkeys at this period were not very tall. There's Some of them still aren't, but anyway... It's kind of funny to see an animal that's about three feet tall carrying a grown man, huh? Yeah, it's kind of, it looks kind of silly. Davy didn't have to carry anyone or anything. All he did every day was stand and wait, eat and sleep. It was boring, and Davy was often unhappy because it seemed no one wanted him to do anything. The other donkeys who were kept in Davy's pen told stories about the famous donkeys of history. One had belonged to a man named Balaam. A wicked king asked Balaam to give a prophecy against God's people. As Balaam was riding the donkey to the place where the people of God were camped, an angel blocked the path. The donkey stopped, but Balaam couldn't see the angel, so he got very angry and he hit the donkey. Then the Lord, gave, uh, the Lord God gave the donkey the power to speak. The donkey asked, What have I done to you that you have hit me? And Balaam said, you are not treating me right. Then God let Balaam see the angel. And the angel said, what you are planning to do is wrong. And when Balaam heard that, he decided not to prophesy against the people of God. The donkeys also told a story about Barnabas, one of the older donkeys, who lived with them. He was very privileged to live in the town of Nazareth. And his owner, Joseph, was a carpenter. And Joseph and his wife, who was about to have a baby, had to go to his hometown of Bethlehem. Mary rode on Barnabas's back. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, Mary had her baby. So, it happened one morning when Davy was feeling especially down because he had nothing to do and could, not, and, and could only eat and sleep. Davy saw two strangers coming. They spoke quietly to his owner. Davy tried to hear the conversation, but he couldn't make out all of their words. But he did hear one of the men say, because the Lord has need of him. Davy wondered what they were talking about. Davy's owner came to the pen and opened the gate, and he brought Davy out and led him <clears throat> to the two men. Take this donkey. His name is Davy. No one has ever ridden him before. But I think he'll be able to do the job. Davy wondered, what are they going to have me do? Whatever it is, it seems important to these guys. 
You'll see the picture. Okay. So they led Davy down the road, and soon he saw a crowd. The two men spoke to the person who seemed to be in charge and called him by his name Jesus. Some of the people in the group put their coats on Davy's back. Then, to Davy's astonishment, Jesus got on his back. It felt strange to have someone sitting on his back, but Davy was excited. So he took Jesus to Jerusalem. As they went down the road, people came around and put their coats and palm branches on the ground in front of Davy and Jesus. They began to sing, shout, and wave palms in the air, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Davy was amazed. When he heard that, he thought, a king is riding on my back? I can't believe that I have been chosen to carry a king. So Davy made up his mind to carry the king to the best of his ability. He stepped carefully along the path of coats and palm branches, and he tried hard to carry Jesus smoothly. And after they came to Jerusalem, Jesus got down and patted Davy's back. And Davy watched as he entered the temple. And he felt very proud of himself. I carried the king. I must be a very special donkey. So the next day, Davy's master decided he was ready for regular work. And one of the servants put two sacks of olives on Davy's back and set out to deliver them. The sacks were heavy, and they scratched Davy's back. Once or twice, he got so tired and miserable that he sat down in the road. But the master's servant just pulled him along. When he got home, he was grumpy. Why did the master make me carry those olives? I carried the king. I shouldn't have to carry ordinary things. Barnabas frowned and said, we are donkeys. It is our job to carry things. Whatever the master decides to put on our backs. Every job is important, even carrying sacks of olives. And you should do your best to do it well. Davy said, I don't think I'll ever enjoy this kind of work. I think I'm better at special jobs like carrying important people. But Davy had to carry things every day. Sometimes he carried olives, servants rode on him. Davy didn't enjoy any of it. He couldn't understand why his master was giving him such ordinary things. To do. One morning, one of his master's servants led Davy to the village on the other side of Jerusalem. As they were returning through the city, Davy saw a crowd coming down the street toward him. The people seemed to be shouting angrily at someone as they moved along. The servant led Davy to the side of the road so the crowd could pass. Davy saw the person the people were shouting at. It was Jesus. The king, Davy, had carried into Jerusalem amid such joy only a few days before. But now the people seemed furious. Davy noticed that Jesus was carrying something, a rough, heavy beam of wood. Jesus seemed to be struggling to carry the beam. With a gasp, Davy saw that Jesus was hurt. His back was covered with cuts and bruises, and his head was bleeding where it was being scratched by a circle of sharp thorns. Suddenly, Jesus fell down. He couldn't carry the beam any farther. Davy wished with all his heart that he could carry the beam for Jesus. He tugged at his rope, but the servant held him back. The soldiers who were with Jesus grabbed a man from the crowd and made him carry the beam. The crowd went on down the street, and the servant led Davy away, and he was confused and sad. 
They shouldn't have made Jesus carry that awful beam. He is the king. Why did he have to carry it? Why were they so angry? When he got home, Davy found old Barnabas. I saw something terrible today. The king I carried was hurt, and the people made him carry a big wooden beam. Why did they do that? Barnabas looked at him kindly. I remember when I carried Jesus and his mother from Bethlehem. His mother and his father knew that he would die to save his people. Someone had told them so. It seems that prophecy has come true. The king was carrying the beam of the cross on which he was going to be crucified. Davy was amazed. So the king was being a servant to others, he said. Yes, Davy, it is a terrible thing that he is being treated so badly, but what he is doing is wonderful. Davy was quiet for several minutes. At last he said, If the king was willing to carry that terrible beam, I will not complain about carrying our master's olives. I will follow Jesus' example and be a willing servant. What do y'all think about that? It's good? Yeah, I think so too. Let's pray. God, I praise you for these children. I thank you for their parents and their family members that bring them here to hear about you every Sunday. And Lord, I just pray that each one of these children belongs to you. And I ask that you continue to grow them in the knowledge and fear of you. And God, I pray for, um, I pray for their safety. And I pray that each heart would be <clears throat> drawn ever closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It's always just a privilege for me to be here, and I always look forward to it. I'm always a little surprised when Brother Shannon calls me and invites me to come back and spend some time with you, and and uh, been looking forward to it now for several weeks. I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to open with me to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I've had on my mind a passage of scripture that is found here, and I've thought a lot about why it's been on my mind, and I'm still thinking about it. I know that'll be a great comfort to some of you. And I ran into some folks at Bill Simmons' cemetery service or graveside service last week. Sue told me she thought she needed a good dose and I said, asked her if she's planning on bringing her lunch. And she said, I don't want to be take, given credit for a long sermon, so I'm leaving lunch at home. But uh, I'll try not to get it too long today. But there's a lot to be said from this passage of Scripture. And uh, the passage that, that's really kind of stood out on me from the, just almost the moment Shannon uh, invited me to be here today is a passage that I've heard lifted out of context and used 
uh, in passing in a lot of different sermons. I'm not sure I've ever actually heard a sermon on this passage. Uh, and so I, it's, uh, you can understand why I've been thinking about it a lot. And the, the, the verse that I want to look at in particular here, and we're going to go back and look at it in its context, but the verse is the 8th verse of chapter 13. Now, as we, as we look at this together, I want you to think about how many times you've heard this said. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Ever heard that before? Lots of times, right? What does it mean? You know, the book of Hebrews is, is surrounded a little bit by mystery. We're not sure who authored the book. Uh, it's um, a little bit, what, as, they, as the scholars say, Pauline in nature. It sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul, but it does not have his name attached to it, as is his practice and the other letters that he has written. Um, <clears throat> At the end, as he closes the letter, he doesn't uh, give us anything to go on in terms of uh, anything that would say for sure that Paul wrote it. In fact, most scholars think Paul didn't write it. But they think it was probably someone who knew Paul, uh, probably maybe one of his scribes, and maybe someone else. And one of the reasons they think that is because towards the end he mentions Timothy others that Paul would have known, others who would have been close to the Apostle Paul, but we don't know for sure. The other thing that's kind of unusual about this, what most scholars agree to be a letter, um, although they think maybe it was first a sermon, which may have been added on to, and there might have been something like footnotes that were made as, as the author was was adjusting this sermon to be a letter, and he went off on a tangent from time to time. He added some thoughts that he thought related, but they weren't maybe directly part of the original text of his sermon. And so it makes for some pretty interesting reading as you try to, to figure out exactly how it all fits. But, but we don't know who this letter is to. It's not addressed to a particular church. There have been all kinds of speculation about who it might have been intended for. Uh, because of references to Italy uh, that are made in this letter, there's some that think, and it's kind of the general consensus, that it was probably addressed to a church in Rome. But it was obviously intended for an audience of Jewish Christians in the early church. We're not absolutely certain of the years when this letter was written. We can get close by some observations that are made, but we don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly what the context was that the writer of Hebrews was seeking to address other than he seems to be addressing this letter to believers who are distressed about what's going on. Is that something that we can relate to this morning? Anybody 
feeling a little bit stressed about what we see going on in the world today. I want us to pause and have just a moment of prayer as we think about uh, that passage of Scripture, that verse. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want us to ask God to give us open hearts and ears to help us understand this passage that we're looking at, how it relates to our circumstances today, and what we're to do with that information. Will you join me as we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the privilege you've given me to be in this place today. I am um, always humbled to come here and to stand behind this pulpit and to open your word and to share it with these people. Many of them friends. Many of them brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of them that I've known for quite a few years now. People who have been faithful to follow you and to serve you in so many different ways and have been a blessing to my life over and over again and a blessing to the kingdom of, of God. And so, Father, I thank you for this opportunity once again to share with people that I care deeply about and for the opportunity to meet others who are perhaps new to the community or new to this church. But, Father, what people really need to hear this morning is not what I have to say, but, Father, we desperately need to hear what you have to say. So we're asking, Father, as we begin our time together today, that you would find us yielded before you, that our hearts would be open and receptive to your word, and that our ears would be able to, to hear what you are saying, and that, Father, beyond that, that our hearts would be so receptive that we would be responsive, that we would commit ourselves to what you would lead us to do. We would be committed to how you would have us respond to a world that some of us are looking around at and having a little difficulty recognizing. And so, Father, we come before you today and we just ask you to give clarity to our thoughts and understanding to our hearts. And, Father, that our response to your word this morning would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't intend to preach a political message this morning, but I can't help but watch the news like you do, and I see things like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and Antifa and, and um, the LGBTQ, all of that that goes with that and all of those things, and, and think about what we've been through during a time of pandemic uh, when the church, in large part, uh, backed away from being assembled together, and we met in other ways. We found other ways to worship, whether it was online, uh, as you've done here, and many of our churches have done that, uh, or it's been on go-to meetings or telephone conferences, all different kinds of things that people have done during this pandemic. 
and, and to wonder. You know, here we are after a year. Uh, I was listening on the radio this morning on the way here, listening to some of the debate about the third shot, the booster shot, for those of you that have been vaccinated, and maybe you got the two-shot version or just the one-shot version, I don't know, but now they're talking about a third shot uh, as a result of the, the variant, the COVID-19 variant. So all kinds of things that cause us to question what's going on in our, in our world and who can we trust and who can we uh, look to to give us real information and meaningful information and to help to give us information to make wise decisions about our own health and our own lives. And um, when I think about that, I can't help but think about this passage of Scripture uh, you know, I preached a message here one time years ago. Most of you probably wouldn't remember it. And I, and, uh, I thought maybe I should start numbering my sermons like that old joke about the guys in prison that just numbered the jokes and somebody would call out a number and everybody would laugh. And, and we've heard them all before. And maybe I should do that in my sermons for you uh, because you've heard so many of them. But... Um, in that sermon that I preached, I was talking about the fact that time is divided into two uh, segments, and that is the time before the birth of Christ and the time since his birth. I talked about all of the things that Christianity has meant uh, to this nation, uh, from our founding documents uh, to medicine to education, you know, most of, the, if not all, of the Ivy League schools were Christian institutions in their founding, and today you'd have a hard time recognizing them as having anything to do ever uh, with Christian values or with scriptural uh, instruction. But equal rights for people, equal rights for women, all of the all of the ways in which Christianity has influenced our culture through the years and really led the way uh, to um, express the value of all people. Uh, and yet today, in what we hear, what we listen to, what we see on the news sometimes, uh, you would think that somehow Christianity has become something to be um, pushed away or hidden, or that uh, you've got to be half crazy to believe any of that stuff anyhow. Well, in Hebrews, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 75 A.D., uh, or maybe a little later than that, um, the church was experiencing things that they weren't sure what to do with. You know, when Jesus <clears throat> ascended to heaven, he assured people that he was coming again. And those people in the early church thought that what he meant was that Jesus was coming any day in their lifetime. That was their expectation. And yet now time had gone by and there had been no, no sign of his second coming. And they were beginning to question what they were doing. And many scholars believe that these believers that the book of Hebrews is addressed to were beginning to question whether it was worth it 
to stay the course, to remain committed, to be a follower of Jesus, or whether it would be a wiser thing to go back to Judaism. And so they were raising that question. They were leaning that direction. Some have have speculated that this church may have been listening to the cries of Christian martyrs being martyred for their faith in the Colosseum in Rome as as the lions were turned into the Colosseum to rip Christians limb from limb. You can imagine why those early Christians would begin to question whether following Jesus was the right thing to do. After all, it didn't seem to be turning out so well for some of those who were following Jesus. And so they questioned. They were having second thoughts. They were having doubts. Well, I want you to to look with me. When you start thinking about this verse 8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, you, you can take this back as far back as you want to go. Now, all the way back, in fact, to creation. He's the same today as yesterday. That means that he would be the same in creation, all the way back to creation and before. Uh, Now, Genesis doesn't say anything about Jesus and creation, but John 1.1 that I've shared many times here says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things that were created were created by him, and without him was nothing made. And he was, he was the glue that held it all together. But more importantly, when we think about the yesterday of this phrase, we have to think about the role that Jesus played uh, as God. And that was his role, and Hebrews talks about this throughout the letter, his role as high priest. He's compared to Melchizedek, but it's not Melchizedek who who prepares the way or adds anything to what Jesus does. In fact, it's the other way around. All of a sudden, what Jesus does gives more validity and credence to Melchizedek and the role that he played. But when we think about this, in, still in John 1, we get down to verse 14. It talks about, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with his people. And we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And one of the requirements for being priest was that we were like, or that, that the priest would be like those that he was priest over. In other words, in order for Jesus to be the priest, the high priest, he had to be, had to become fully human. And so he came to us as an infant and he tabernacled among us. He lived with us. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way such as we are and yet without sin so that he could fulfill the high priestly role. Well, so what does he do today? We think about yesterday and his role as the high priest. We're going to see some of that in this passage. We know that he goes to a cross, having known no sin, that he sheds his own blood to be the propitiation for our sins, 
that his blood covers us, that through him we are made righteous, that our sins are forgiven. And that's part of his priestly function is to uh, be the Savior. In fact, when he, before he was born, uh, the angel appeared to Joseph and said, you'll, you'll name him Jesus because he will save his people. Part of his priestly role. When he ascended to heaven, he assumed a new role on your part and mine. He's still the high priest, but now he is our mediator today. He prays for us. He promised to pray for us. And he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for you and for me. But what about tomorrow? Well, he's still the high priest. He's still our mediator. But tomorrow, he is conquering king. He is going to bring fulfillment to the promise that he has made. And one day, he's going to come and receive his people to himself. And my mother is 91 stayed home from church one Sunday morning recently because she wasn't feeling well. She was taking antibiotics for a, an infection she was dealing with. And I check on mother every day, go by and see her and feed her cats and sit down and visit with her a while. And, and she said, you know, I watched three sermons this morning. I said, you did? She said, oh, yeah. I said, caught Dr. David Jeremiah. Some of you have watched him on TV. Mother enjoys seeing him regularly. And she listened to Dr. Jeffers, First Baptist Dallas, and she listened to uh, Brother Hagee down in San Antonio. She said, they all preached on the same thing today. I said, really? She said, yep. They all preached on we are in the end days. We're in the final days right here. She's now only one of them had it figured out exactly when. <laughs> so that's three and a half years, according to him. But the other two uh, were just as sure that we are in the final days. Now, folks, I'm hearing a lot of messages like that, a lot of speculation. <clears throat> I've said for 20 years, at least, that I don't see anything standing in the way of Christ's return. I think all that waits is his command. But I don't see how it changes anything in terms of the responsibility of the church. I don't see how it changes anything in how we live other than to create a greater sense of urgency in our lives about the mandate that God has given us to be the church. And so I keep coming back to that. I, I can't, when I start looking at the end days, I can't get over the part where it says no man knoweth the hour. I can't get past the part where it says he's going to come like a thief in the night. And that we just need to be ready, whether it's three and a half years from now or before we get home for lunch. Because I think all of those things are possible. And I think it's likely, in fact, I have no doubt in saying this, we are closer to the return of Christ than we have ever been. Now you laugh about that, but I'm serious. And I believe that it is more important than, than ever that we understand as a church, as God's people, how he wants us to live and how he wants us to serve. So I want us to start here in verse 1. And you see, if you can see with me the relevance of any of this, 
to the days that we're living in. Verse 1 of 13, keep on loving each other as brothers. Now when you start doing word studies on this verse, what you find is that we're talking about brothers in Christ with no regard for race, but only those who have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, which is offered to all men. And when I say men, I'm not excluding women. I'm talking about mankind. And that the scripture is clear when it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all kinds of influences on our lives that cause us to compare ourselves to someone else and, and have a lower opinion of somebody because of maybe how they've acted or what they've done that we see as being worse than what we've done. And, but that's not the scriptural standard. The scriptural standard is that there's not anyone righteous, not even one. We are all sinners in need of a Savior, and we all fall short of the glory of God. The standard is Jesus Christ. And so this admonition is to keep on loving each other as brothers, not, not with no regard to, to race or, or financial position or any of the other things that the world puts value on, but as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. A lot of scholars think this is a reference all the way back to Genesis uh, about entertaining strangers who had who had were angels who had a message to deliver, and they were welcomed, they were received. So, <clears throat> question here becomes: When we think about this in our current day, we're not talking about just having some good friends over for a meal. We're talking. We may be talking about other believers. We don't know. We're meeting for the first time, but we're extending them hospitality and, and fellowship. Or it could be that we're also talking about non-believers that we're seeking an opportunity to be able to bear witness to. And so when we keep in our, in our mind as God gives us opportunity that uh, he has purpose for what he does. Then he says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. We're obviously here talking about Christians who are in prison because they are Christians. They're being persecuted for their faith. And he's saying, don't forget them. But instead, remember them as if you yourself were there with them. Identify with them in their sufferings. Pray for them. Encourage them in any way that you can because being a follower of Christ could very well mean you would be there with them at some point. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, this is not a, an admonition about money being bad. This is what this is saying.
keep things in perspective. It's not telling you not to plan for the future. What it's saying is don't let money become uh, the driving force in everything that you do. Uh, is, there a, is there a lot of uncertainty about financial things in our world today? I, I would say so. I think a lot of people are wondering where to put investments and all that kind of thing. But what I, we need to understand is that more important of that is we need to recognize what follows this verse right here. Uh, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You know, Bill's graveside service uh, this last week, that was Wednesday, Jody chose Romans chapter 8 uh, as part of his text for that service uh, where it talks about if God is for us, who can be against us? So, <clears throat> I'm, and I'm, I may touch on that tonight in my message, but, but um, it's important that we keep a heavenly perspective on our lives in the here and now. That we understand that we're just passing through. Uh, you know, I was sharing out in the foyer earlier about a, an experience I had many years ago now, 40-something years ago, when I was 20 years old. And I met a friend, a fellow over in Early. And uh, when I first got to First Baptist Early's music and youth minister, and, and um, going through the church rolls and trying to see who I needed to get out in the community and meet. And I had put together a list of names after I'd been there two or three weeks. I still hadn't seen these kids in the youth, anything we'd done at the church. So on a Saturday morning, I was out visiting with people, and I knocked on a door, and I was, I was walking up the sidewalk. I could hear the family arguing inside. It was loud. And uh, this fella came to the door, and I mean, he threw that door open like he was trying to tear it off the hinges. And he looked at me, and he said, What do you want? And I said, uh, introduced myself. I said, I'm the new music youth minister at First Baptist in Early. And, and uh, Renee is on our church rolls, our Sunday school class roll. And I, I haven't met her. So this morning I'm trying to get around and meet some of the youth that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. And he said, well, come on in. We need a preacher. And so I, I walked in the house and visited with them. And eventually he became the director of our high school youth department. Uh, he had a ranch down at Mullen and down on the Colorado River below the Regency Bridge, and we did lots of things together. But one, one Saturday morning, he picked me up about 5 o'clock, and we drove out to Mullen to the ranch and went through a gate I'd never been through, and it was dark, and I had no idea where we, where we were, you know, much less where we were going. And, and he drove a while, and he stopped and rolled down the windows and killed the engine, and I said, what are we doing? And he said, well, he said, I need to do a deer count for my hunters. And I said, okay, and eventually the sun came up, and we were up on a bluff looking over a valley, and I mean, it's beautiful. There were deer everywhere. And uh, I said, man, you've got to feel pretty good about yourself. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, here you are, 36 years old. He worked for Bell Helicopter in Fort Worth. He put all of his money he could into their, uh, their retirement fund, and they had a matching program. And I mean, he put the max in, and, 
And when he got enough money, he took that out and bought that thousand acre ranch over at Mobile. Guy, you know, harvested Bermuda grass and sprig for the public all over that part of the world. And, and uh, I made a lot of money. And his daughter got up junior high age. They wanted her to go to school in Early for some reason. So they went and bought a house in Early. And he got a free tow layer out and started delivering chips and was through by one or two o'clock in the day. So he'd get back to the ranch and do what needed to be done there. I said, here you are with all this, uh, you know, going your way. I mean, you just got to feel blessed. And he said, well, he said, let's meet back here in 100 years and see who it belongs to then. He said, I understand what you're saying. I get it. And he said, that's the way I felt. But he said, Renee could care less about a cow or a horse. And he said, I had this idea about building a legacy for my family to leave to them. And, and he said, um, when I die, she's probably going to sell this and go do whatever she wants to do. And he said, you know what? took me a while to come to terms with that. But he said, that's probably the best. He said, this was my dream, not Renee's. Now, Renee's back at the ranch now, I'm happy to tell you. I did his funeral uh, here uh, six months ago, something like that. You never know how things are going to work out in people's lives. But what he told me that morning was something that I needed to hear as a 20-year-old young man. It's not about my plans. It's about the plans that God has for your life and for mine. And there's no greater joy to be found than to know that you're in the center of his plans rather than trying to get him to join you in yours. <clears throat> the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now look at this. Verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is speaking about uh, leaders who have died and have gone on. And his admonition is to think about the example of their leadership, their lives, their faithfulness, their testimony. And to be imitators of that faith. I don't have to think very long in this place to find a good example. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wish I had the time to go further with this. Maybe I'll do that tonight. But I want to finish with this just a couple of thoughts <clears throat> one is this um, it's hard to believe but 25 years ago roughly um, in a seminary class I had a professor who had pastored First Baptist Church of Anchorage and he was teaching a, a course on evangelism and I was not your typical seminary student. I was in my 40s when I started seminary. And so I was sitting in this class one day, and he said, evangelism cannot be done the way it's always been done. 
I didn't really have a problem with that. Uh, I'm, I've shared with you numerous times, I'm sure, what Elman Howell said, who, who was the uh, director of the Texas Baptist Men's River Ministry for several years. And uh, when he was in his late 70s, I heard him make a statement that I wrote down in the back cover of my Bible. And he said, um, methods change often. Principles never do. That's something to think about. Methods change often. But principles never do. He was speaking about evangelism. He was talking about reaching the lost. He was talking about ministering specifically up and down the Texas-Mexico border and reaching the Hispanic people. The next thing the professor said was, everywhere's gated communities now. You can't go through those gates and knock on doors. Well, I guess you know, it's typical with me sometimes, I couldn't not respond. And I said, you know, that may be true in Anchorage, Alaska, but in Baird, Texas, I mean, gated communities. In Kingsville, Texas, we don't have any gated communities. As a denomination, we've taught classes on evangelism, explosion, and, and uh, faith now, and all kinds of things to equip our people how to share their faith. And I've told you before, the best program I know of is intentional evangelism. If you don't intend to share your faith, it doesn't matter what you know, how much training you've received, you're not going to do it. You've got to intend to share your faith, to share your faith. And in Kingsville, while I was on staff there, we had Monday night visitation every Monday night. And we had a little brochure, a little track that we used. It's called Life's Greatest Discovery. And inside were the four spiritual laws. That everyone's a sinner. Christ came to die for our sins. We confess our sins. God's faithful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And we invite him into our lives, and he'll do that, and he'll save us from our sin, and he'll give us eternal life. And we've been doing that for a long time, groups of two or three uh, every Monday night. Chamber of Commerce would give us a list of people that moved into town, and we'd try to visit those people. People visited on Sunday morning, went to the top of the list. We were going to see them on Monday. A lot of people were saved as a result of that. But after several years... Our pastor, Dan Wooldridge, who's been here for revival many years ago, was standing in line at a convenience store. And the man in front of him at the register was complaining about everything under the sun. Price of fuel, how many lottery tickets he had bought, no winners, one thing and another, just on and on and on. Complaint, complaint, complaint. And the lady at the cash register finally said, Mr., what you need is what that man behind you has in his pocket. And sticking up over the edge of Dan's shirt pocket was that little pamphlet that said, Life's Greatest Discovery. And the man turned around and looked at Dan's pocket. He said, Life's Greatest Discovery, huh? And Dan said, well, yeah. 
He said, well, what is that life's greatest discovery? And Dan said, well, the greatest discovery I've ever made in life is to know that God loves me and has a plan for my life. And he's made a way whereby I can know him in a personal way, and so can you. And he said, could we go outside and let me share with you what this pamphlet has to say? The man said, well, I reckon so. He said, seems to come highly recommended by this lady here. And so he walked outside and led the man to Christ. One of my daughters started teaching high school this year at a new high school, opened four grades all at once, big 5A, maybe 6A, big school, fancy school, stuff I never thought about having in school. And um, on one of the walls in her classroom, she wrote Bible verses. I don't know if she wrote the references or just the verse or the whole verse or just part of the verse. She never said a word about it. She just put the verses on the wall and during the course of the year, some of her students began to notice those things. And someone finally said, Ms. Ellis, are those Bible verses on your wall? And she said, yes, they are. And another student said, and do you believe those things? And she said, well, yes, I do. One of her students had grown up in another country, moved to Texas recently. And she was practicing witchcraft and some other thing I've never heard of. And uh, after some months of school, she made some pretty derogatory comments about Christianity. Angela really didn't respond. She just listened to her and nodded her head. But one of her friends invited her to go to a youth program at their church. And she went. And after going back a time or two, in class one day, she said, you know, not all Christians are bad. <laughs> and my daughter said, is that so? She said, yeah. She said, you know, my friend invited me to church. I went with her. And the youth minister there, he knows now that I don't believe all that stuff. But he doesn't look down at me. He doesn't make fun of me. And uh, she said, well, that's, that's great. I hope you find that true of all Christians. We just found something that is meaningful to us and that we think has value for everyone. And that is that God loves us and that he has a plan for our lives. And part of that plan is to bring us joy and fulfillment and happiness. So a few more weeks and months went by and she came back to my daughter, stayed after class one day, and she said, you know that verse about prayer on your wall? And she said, yes. And she said, do you believe that? And she said, yes, I do. She said, do you pray? And she said, well, yes, I do. She said, well, I don't know how I feel about that, but she said, my aunt was diagnosed with cancer last week. Would you pray for my aunt? She said, I will. And she said, can we do that now while everyone's out of the classroom? And she said, yes, we can. And so they bowed their heads and my daughter prayed for her aunt and prayed for her. Folks, I don't care how many gates they put up. I don't care how many pandemics we have. 
I don't care what happens in the world. Nothing has changed about Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is imperative that his people also are the same. That we stay about the business of sharing our faith while yet there is time. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, later in this passage of scripture, the writer of Hebrews talking about, talks about the fact that Jesus went outside of the camp, that is to Calvary, where he was nailed to a cross and where he shed his blood for our sins. And the writer of Hebrews urges the people to also go outside the camp. When he talks about the camp, he's talking about this area that is defined by rules and being very distinct ways of doing things and making sacrifices of animals. And he says, though that blood did not do anything to, to take away the sin of man, but what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary did something that forever covers our sin. And we must choose to go outside of the camp where those meaningless rules were that didn't do anything for us and to follow Jesus in all that he's done and all that he's called us to do. It's very simple to choose, but we have to choose Christ, the Bible says, died for all, once for all, the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to the Father, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That is, that we might inherit everlasting life, eternal life. John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible, for God so loved, that's his motivation, the world, that's you and me, that he gave. It's his gift to us. His only begotten son. No other way to the father. Except through him. That all who believe. Should not perish. But would have everlasting life. In just a moment. We're going to have an invitation. It won't last long. Just a verse or two. Of the Savior's waiting, I believe, is the song this morning. And if you've never done that, it would be my privilege to meet you here at the front and talk with you and pray with you about making that choice today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We're not promised a tomorrow. When God speaks to us, when his spirit moves us, we need to be responsive to that. Maybe that means you come here and pray at this altar this morning. Maybe you'd like to pray with me, me pray for you. I'd be honored to do that. But whatever decision God is leading you to make this morning, I urge you to do it in these brief moments that we have. Will you bow with me? Father, I just again thank you for the time to be here today. And Thank you for your word and its richness to our lives and its meaning for us. And I just pray, 
God, this morning that your Holy Spirit would find freedom to move among us, to lead us, and that you'd find us responsive to that leadership. If, if just one needs to be saved here today and needs a little help in understanding how to go about that, Father, I pray that you just let nothing stand in the way, that this amen, that they would just step out and come forward and give me just the incredible privilege to share with them how they can do that and settle that choice this morning that every one of us has to make. Father, I love you. I thank you for the privilege of calling you Lord and Savior and friend. And I pray that you would just be honored by our response in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?